Well, good morning. This morning, I want to talk to you out of Acts 22, verses 1 through 30, and the title of this teaching is Paul's Apologetic to the Crowd. Paul's third apostolic journey concluded with his arrival in Jerusalem around 60 AD. He had been a Christian for more than 25 years. Many of his Jewish contemporaries in Jerusalem still remembered him and viewed him as a traitor, even though this was 25 years after he had made his he had encountered Christ. Furthermore, there were reports that the uh, Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were getting from Jews in other places that were giving them concern about Paul. Supposedly, Paul allegedly was telling Jews who converted to Christianity to turn away from Jewish tradition and customs. So when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, his reputation preceded him. And soon his presence was known. The Jewish leaders of the local local church there, local ecclesia, sought to protect him, but their efforts were futile. Before long, a crowd, an angry Jewish crowd, gathered to cancel Paul. That's the terminology we use today, but back then it meant to kill him. A riot broke out. So interesting to see the, the times in Scripture that Jesus, just his presence, his teaching, caused a riot. So a riot broke out. The Roman authorities have no clue what's going on. They think he's an Egyptian revolutionary, but discovered that he was a Jew. And furthermore, he was a Jew who surprisingly knew Greek. He asked for permission to address the crowd. And because he knew Greek, they respected that. And the Romans gave him an opportunity to talk to the crowd. The Romans were curious about why this uproar, why this riot was breaking out. They didn't understand that. So they were letting him speak in part so they could find out what was going on. Paul offered an apologetic to the crowd of Jews. He spoke of his background in Judaism and then explained his conversion to Christianity. In the book of Acts, there are three accounts of Paul's conversion, Acts 9, 22, and 26. Each account is limited. Each account is to a different audience. There are commonalities and differences with each account. Nevertheless, the accounts are not contradictory, but complementary. So given that scripture captures his conversion three times, this suggests the importance of the event. There's something here we really need to see. But so in Acts 22, Luke recorded the second account of Paul's conversion to Christianity. And this account was given in Paul's own words. The prior account in Luke's 9 was Luke's record of the account And now we're going to have Paul's actual words about what he told people about that day where he met Christ. So let's move on to chapter Acts chapter 22, verse 1. I've titled this first section, verses 1 through 5, Paul's background in Judaism. Verse 1, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. That word defense, apologia is the word we get apologetics from. Uh, Apologetics is not apologizing. It is given a defense, a reason for the hope that's within you. That's what an apologetic is. When they heard that he was addressing them in Aramaic, which was a Hebrew dialect. In other words, the Hebrew had, Hebrews had the pure Hebrew language, but the Gentiles uh, that lived among them uh, had a dialect of Hebrew, and supposedly that was the Aramaic language. 
So Paul apparently knew three languages. He knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, and he knew Aramaic. And I presume that Jesus probably did too as well, if not more languages. So when they heard him speak in Aramaic, they, that is the crowd, became even quieter. He continued, I am a Jew, that is an ethnic Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the law of our ancestors. Now, the word for educated here is the word for training a child, and it's used in a perfect perfect uh, tense. The perfect tense refers to past action that was completed. His education under Gamaliel was, was completed, but the perfect tense implies ongoing results, ongoing benefits. So it's the right tense to use here. That education still was bearing fruit in his life, and it's important in his defense that they understand that he was still living in light of that education. He had not rejected that education. And Gamaliel was regarded as one of the leading leading teachers of the day. It says uh, uh, the, the word Gamaliel refers to the idea of God being his recompenser. Another one that's, that's paying the penalty for his sin, that kind of thing. He was Paul's preceptor. A preceptor is someone that teaches you the precepts. And he was regarded, Gamaliel was regarded as one of the best, one of the leaders. Gamaliel shows up also in Acts chapter 5 when he advised the Sanhedrin about how to respond to the, to the Christians who were doing supernatural things in the early ecclesia. So he was highly regarded, Gamaliel was highly regarded as a teacher, as a leader in the community, the Jewish community of that day. Going on, he says, I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. See, you can be zealous for God and be, be wrong. You can be zealous for God and not understand who he is and what he's about. So Paul was clearly an example of that. He was zealous for God, and he's looking at the Jews who have not come to Christ, and he's saying, you are zealous for God, just like I was back 25 years ago. You're zealous for God. I understand that. And furthermore, I expressed my zeal this way. Then verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way. And the word way there is the word hodas. Hodas refers to a lifestyle, a way of living. Christianity from the very beginning was not a profession of faith. It was a lifestyle. It was a way of living. Christians lived differently, and they were willing to do it unto death. I persecuted this way to the death. That is, these Christians were being martyred for the name of Christ. He was arresting, putting both men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. And after I received letters from them to the brothers, in other words, Paul was sent by the religious leaders of his day, and he was sent to Damascus. He was sent there to arrest people, incarcerate people, and he had already had a history of participating and murdering, martyring people who would not you know, renounce Christianity but would stood true to their faith. So this was a really serious you know, paradigm of life that the Jews lived and the Christians lived. The Christians were willing to die 
for their faith. And Paul had been participating with the Jews and persecuting the Christians. And it's interesting that it talks about how he punished them. He said, I traveled to Damascus to arrest. His purpose was to arrest those who were there and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. The idea of punishment here is a compound word. It comes from the word for honor with the word to limit. So it's to limit honor. To his, so it's to avenge of honor or guard against honor. That's the way they were going to punish it. We're going to take the whatever honor you have as a Christian and we're going to squash it. We're going to come against it. We're going to try to eliminate it. So that was the idea of punishment. Going on to verse uh, 6 through 11, this is Paul's account of his encounter with Jesus. So now he's moving from his, and it's apologetic, he's moving to actually how he was converted. What happened? So he says, as I was traveling and approaching Damascus, so Damascus was about 150 miles or so from Jerusalem. He'd probably been on the road for five or six days. You know, you know, he's getting close. We don't know how close. It's about noontime. And all of a sudden, there's this intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. We don't know how long it flashed. We just know it flashed. And it's very intense. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, you would think that would uh, be very clear to Saul, who was Saul was his name prior to being, being renamed Paul. You would think that Saul would be very clear that this had could be no one other, none other than Jesus because he was persecuting Jesus. He was on this road to Damascus to persecute those who followed Jesus. But he doesn't, doesn't show that he knew that. Instead, he answered, who are you? Lord. He knew that whoever had intercepted him was the Lord. But who are you? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one that you're persecuting. You know, I think the way that phrase is so significant. You remember when Moses encountered the burning bush in the book of Exodus, Moses did not know what he was looking at. And the Lord revealed himself there and revealed his, the call that he had on Moses' life. And then Moses asked, well, how do I identify you? How do I explain to the people you're sending me to who you are? And you remember God said this. It said, basically said, my name is I am. I am means I exist. I have always existed. I always will exist. I am the uncreated creator. I'm the uncaused cause. I'm the necessary being. Everyone else is a contingent being. That is the great I am. So when, when Jesus identified himself, he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. He's uh, connecting himself to the great I am. And it's interesting. That's how we all introduced ourselves. I am Gerald. I am connected to the great I am. He has created me and called me. So 
this is a very poignant phrase about how Jesus identified who he was. I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. So Jesus makes it very clear in responding to Paul's question, who are you, Lord? He's saying, I am your Lord. Going on, he says, now those those who uh, were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice. So they they the word here here uh, akuo is trans it's translated in some versions understand they didn't they heard something because they heard a sound in Acts nine Paul's companion heard the sound but they didn't see anyone and here in twenty two that what they what we have here is they didn't understand the voice the voice phone you might hear the word uh, phonograph or microphone. That's voice. Okay. The voice of the one who was speaking to me. I said, what should I do, Lord? And so Paul very quickly realizes he's talking to the Lord. And this word to do here is what, what is it that, what else, how am I supposed to respond to this? Now, it's interesting he would say that because he's blind. If you're blind, it's really hard to do anything. You can't see anything. So the Lord told him, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything that has been assigned for you to do. In Christianity, we don't do to become a Christian. We are brought to Christ by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit to do things. So our works do not bring us to Christ, but our but coming to Christ, we are brought to an assignment of works. We don't do works to be saved. We do works as a consequence of being saved. So we have to understand how works connect into the salvation process. If you don't, you will be confused, and people will probably call you legalist if you put any emphasis on works at all. You need to be able to explain that. You're called, not called by works, but you're called to works. I think it's a great way to articulate this. So Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told everything. And that word, everything, is the word pas. Now, I hear a lot of teachers, the PTP teachers I'm around, don't understand how to deal with the word pas. When you hear the word pas, probably the best way to think about that word, everything or always or all, you hear those kinds of, that's the way it can be translated multiple ways. What you're hearing, you have to ask yourself, is this all without distinction or all without exception? That's different. All without distinction would be all classes of whatever the, the topic is, like all classes of people, all ethnic groups would be, it could be a translation, or it can be pos meaning all without exception, mean everyone within every class. So what is this? Well, the context almost always will help you. He told them everything that you have been assigned to do. He's talking about specifically the call of God, the works that Paul has been called to do. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about he's going to tell you everything. He's going to be telling you everything you've been called to do. So it's very specific of what he's talking about here. It says, I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light. 
In other words, the brightness of the light blinded him physically. I was led by the hand by those who were with me and went into Damascus. It's so interesting to see how the picture of conversion here. Conversion is first, you've got, got to be blinded about what you think you see so you can be given the sight to see correctly. So his sight will be restored, but more importantly, he will now have metaphysical awareness, the ability to see from God's perspective that we all are given when we come to Christ. We're given a level of that, and our charge is to grow in that capacity as we mature in Christ. So reading on now, verses 12 through 21, this is Paul's account of his encounter with Jesus. So continuing, someone named Ananias. It's so interesting how the translators have have rendered that. Someone. It's just like this is a, you know, this is like a person that, you know, nobody knows. This is the unknown person. We all identify with Ananias, the no-name person. We don't really see ourselves as being widely known generally. There are a few people who are. Most are not. So you need to know that even when you're not widely known, you count. Someone named Ananias, and Ananias means whom Jehovah has graciously given, a devout man according to the law who had a good reputation. And that word good reputation is is the translation of the participle marturo. Now that participle is present tense, which means continuous action. It's passive voice, meaning that you you don't develop your own reputation. You're not self-promoting. This is what others are saying about you. And it means you are well spoken of by others. And it's ongoing. This is the way you live. You live in this good reputation because you are consistently walking with God. He was a devoted man to the law. And remember, the law is the Mosaic law, but it contains revelation about the righteousness of God that we should all live in. So, and it was the Jews that live in Damascus that respected him. Now, these are the Jews that are persecuting him. That's very interesting that your enemies can respect you. Going on in verse 13. So, it came, this Ananias came and stood by me and said, Brother Saul. Now, you see, we don't have anything that's recorded in, in the Acts 9 account about Ananias' conversation with Jesus and his resistance to do this. He didn't really want to go to this guy, Saul, whom he knew was a dangerous fellow. And the Lord said, don't worry about it. You go and do what I tell you to do. So he goes, he stands before Saul, and he says to Saul, regain your sight. Now, that notice the word there he uses is a compound word, uh, the word ana, which means amongst and blepo, which means to see. So you see a monk, that's sight. And uh, it is an imperative mood. It is a mandate. It's a command. Regain your sight. But there's nothing he can do to regain his sight. It's given to him. And that very hour, he's, he says, in that very hour, I looked up. Now, that word looked up is actually the same word, anablepo. So it's it's, the, the translators have just kind of assumed that he was kind of looking down and now all of a sudden he looked up and he could see. But the idea is all of a sudden he could see. And that clearly was a miracle, a supernatural act to restore the sight. And saw no, 
so, and in that hour, hour, I looked up and saw him, and he said, the God of our ancestors, he's looking at, at, at Ananias, and the God of our ancestors, the fathers, has appointed you to know his will. In other words, Paul, you have been redeemed from your unrighteous state, and you have been placed into the family of God, and you have an assignment, an appointment that you have been directed to do your commission to know his will. Now, he doesn't tell us the detail of how much of his will he will know. Will he know all of it? No, because no one knows it all. We all see in part. You will have the ability to see with metaphysical awareness. This is now a different word for seeing, orao, which is to perceive with metaphysical awareness. The righteous one. Perceive who is the righteous one approved by God, that would be Jesus. You see it's capitalized here. The translators are trying to suggest this is Jesus, the righteous one. And to hear the words from his mouth, since you may be, you will be a witness, a martyr, a witness is someone who's willing to die for those they're witnessing to, a witness for him to all. And this now, here we have Pos again, all people of what you have seen and heard. Now, this would be all without distinction because we know not everyone is going to come to Christ. Not everyone is called by God to come to Christ. Only certain ones are. In fact, we know, like from Matthew 7, where Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to life, and few enter thereby, that most people enter the broad way that leads to destruction. They don't enter the narrow way. So this all is all without distinction. So knowing other scripture that helps us understand how to understand the all here. Going on in verse uh, 16, and now why are you delaying? This is, this is very interesting too, because now all that's happened so far, Paul has not been able to do anything. It's all been done for him. Christ has intercepted him. He didn't choose Christ. He was, not, he was not seeking Christ. Christ intercepted him. Okay, but, and he blinded him, and then he turned around and said Ananias, and he, Ananias was used to bring healing to his eyes and to explain to him what was going on. If we go back to the Acts 9 text, we know that's where he was filled with the Holy Spirit as well. So he's saying now, don't delay. Why are you delaying? It's so interesting he would say it that way. Why are you delaying? What are you waiting on? And then here's a command. The imperative mood is used here. Get up and be baptized. And this is the word baptizo. Those of you that know Greek know there's the word bapto and there's baptizo. Bapto means to simply to dunk something in water, to wash off the dirt off of it, like a, like a vegetable. You pull from the garden, you dunk it in water to wipe off the, the dirt off the vegetable. But baptizo is like taking that vegetable and dunking it in a solution, a brine, to actually transform the vegetable for preservation purposes. So that speaks of transformation. So he's told to baptizo, be baptized, be transformed. Well, he can't transform yourself, so you have to submit to this. So now we're moving into the sanctification aspect of salvation. You know, the regeneration aspect, we have absolutely nothing to do with. 
But now with sanctification, we are actually, we are responsible to step in and to receive and to, to submit and surrender. And so they see told to be told to surrender to be baptized and, and which means transformed and wash away your sins, calling on his name. In other words, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The ability to call on the name of the Lord is not from man. It is from God working in man to do that. So that's that's his explanation of what happened to him on the road to Damascus. And now you see, I put in the text, I put three dashes here before verse 17, because verse 17 appears to be about three years later, because now he's returning to Jerusalem. He said, after I return to Jerusalem, well, that we know he went to Arabia for three years and he stayed in Damascus for a while. So when you put all that together, you say, okay, verse 17 now is skipping forward in time. So it says, after I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance, very similar to what happened with Peter when he was uh, getting ready to meet Cornelius in Acts 10. And I saw him referring to the righteous one, verse 14, telling me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony, your martue, about me. So this is what Jesus is telling him. Get out of there. And now Paul is being Paul. He's saying, well, yeah, but. But I said, you know, we shouldn't be saying, talking back to the Lord, acting like we can go toe to toe with the Lord. The Lord's given you a command, do it. But instead, he shows a little resistance here. It shows he's human. We all would do things like this. Lord, you know that in the synagogue, after synagogue, I... I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was about shed, being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So this is when he set off. He sent back home. This began Paul's silent years, probably something like five to ten years, where he was back home before he went back and re-engaged in the work, his apostolic work. The person that sent him home, we know from a prior text, was Barnabas. And the person that will go retrieve him and re-engage him will be Barnabas. Barnabas was his first spiritual father. This is what spiritual fathers do. They, they sometimes send you home, and sometimes they go retrieve you and re-engage you. So you've got to be know that this is how God works through spiritual fathers. Well, going on here very quickly, but but I said, Lord, you know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten, and with and when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, because I will send you far away to the ethnos, to the Gentiles. So. Basically, even though he's giving some pushback to the, the Lord here, the Lord's very patient with him, and the Lord still, his, his directive stands. None of Paul's objections had any bearing. Go do what I told you to do. That's a wise thing to learn to do. Well, let's conclude this, this text here. We're reading verses 22 to 23, 20, uh, 22 to 30 very quickly. 
So how does the crowd respond? Once they, Paul said the word ethnos, which refers to ethnic groups, uh, the crowd got stirred up. Verse 22, they listened to him to the point. Then they raised their voices shouting, wipe this man off the face of the earth. Cancel this man. He shall no longer live, be allowed to live. As they were yelling and flinging aside their garments and throwing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to bring him into the barracks, directing that he would be interrogated with a scourge, which is the whip, to discover the reason. The word reason there is epigonosco, which means precise, precisely what's going on here. I want to know exactly why they're reacting this way. They were shouting against him like this. As they stretched out for the lash, Paul, they stretching Paul out to lash him. Paul said to the centurion standing by, is it legal for you to scourge a man who's a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? Uncondemned means you are punishing me when I have not been tried and convicted. We call that, that's what we call today. You try a person, you convict them, then they're condemned. So he's an uncondemned man, hadn't been tried and convicted. And when the centurion heard this, he went and reported to the commander saying, what are you going to do for this man is a Roman citizen? The commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he said. The commander replied, I bought this citizenship for a large sum of money, meaning that he probably paid a bribe to get it. But Paul says, I was born a citizen. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. The commander, and remember the commander is the is the the one in charge of, of a thousand men, which would be ten centurions. Paul was a, the commander was also alarmed. And that word alarm there is fearful, phobio, that he was severe. And when he realized now, see, he, the word epigonosco is used, he came to understand he was clear, absolutely clear that Paul was a Roman citizen and he had bound him. This was not good. The next day, since he wanted to find out, now we were, we use the word gnosko, which is not the intense form of knowledge. It's just general knowledge. But then he uses an adverb exactly. So he almost gets to the same place. I want precise knowledge, but he uses it, uses two words instead of the epigonosco, which would be one word for exact knowledge. I want to know exactly why Paul is being accused by the Jews. So he released Paul and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. In other words, he, ga- he gathers the religious leaders, not the crowd. Paul had been talking to the crowd, everyone. Now it's just the leaders, and he bought, brought Paul down to them and placed them before him. And verse 23, we'll see what his apologetic is to the religious leaders. So that will be what we'll talk about next time. So first, let me just conclude here with a a word of theology here and an application. So I want to talk about the truth about conversion. The key concept to unlock the revelation of the good news of the kingdom of God concealed in the Old Testament scripture was the revelation that Jesus is Lord and Christ. That's Acts 2.36. That should be regarded as a seminal text. For those who are biblically literate, who respect the Old Testament, want to be regulated and governed by the Old Testament, once you know Acts 2.36, it unlocks everything. Everything else that unfolds in the New Testament is a corollary of this axiom, including the truth about the means and methods by which a person becomes a follower of Jesus. Accordingly, 
What other norms can be gleaned from Paul's conversion as first recorded in Luke's words in Acts 9 and then in Paul's words in Acts 22 about Paul's encounter with Jesus? To discern what is normative about entering into the salvation process, one must consider what is prescriptive versus what is simply descriptive regarding Paul's experience. This is one of the key principles of sound hermeneutics, is recognizing this distinction, prescriptive versus what is simply descriptive. Everything is descriptive. Some things are prescriptive. So we have to make that what is simply descriptive, that's all it is, versus what is also prescriptive. Furthermore, to make this distinction between prescriptive and simply descriptive, one can use the hermeneutical principle of, of scriptura, a scriptura explicande est. That's a Greek, uh, excuse me, a Latin phrase for scripture explains scripture. So we look at other texts of scripture to help us understand whatever text we're looking at. So using this hermeneutical principle with respect to Paul's conversion to Christianity as recorded in scripture, let me offer some thoughts, some observations regarding the process of conversion or salvation and how we can understand what we can understand to be normative of this process from the experience that the Apostle Paul had as recorded in the book of Acts in Acts 9, 22 and 26. So let me just give you 12. I'm just going to read them off real quickly. Number one, Paul is not seeking Christ. He was opposing Christ. Is that normative or not? I think it's normative. I think we're all opposing Christ. Romans 3 makes that very clear, I think. Number two, Paul did not choose Christ. Rather, Christ chose him. That was pretty clear as well. John 15, 16 tells us the same thing. Number three, the encounter with Christ was irresistible. And again, other scripture gives us that truth as well. Paul didn't have any way to resist this. Number four, the initial encounter did not include a human agent. That is very true. You have to be born again before the Spirit of God enters you. You are regenerated by the Spirit of God, and now the Spirit of God dwells in you, and that changes you. But the initial encounter is totally a sovereign work of God. There is no human agent involved in that. Number five, the key message was that Jesus was Lord in Christ, and this unlocked the Old Testament scripture. It still unlocks the Old Testament scripture, even though today we are not very biblically literate about the Old Testament. You still need to know that much of what we need to know about Christianity is found in the Old Testament with the understanding that Jesus is Lord and Christ. Number six, the confirmation of the revelation about Jesus was the resurrection. The resurrection was the event that validated the claim of who Jesus was and the claim of his work as Lord in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 is a great text. Acts 2 is another great text on this. Number seven, the primary purpose of Paul's conversion was to serve the purpose of God. You see, Paul will enjoy eternity with the Father and with the Son. That is true. We all will enjoy that. But there is something for us to do here and now. We are redeemed to serve something that God wants us to do. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that. Number eight, a human agent was used according to the sovereign pleasure of God after the encounter with Jesus. The human agent, what we have, Romans 10 talks about how we are to proclaim the message 
The only people that will hear that message are those who have been regenerated, who have been born again. Anyone who has not been regenerated cannot hear it. So that's hard for us because we put a lot of emphasis on on evangelism being the means by which people come to Christ. No, evangelism is the means by which people step in to the process of sanctification. It is not, it has nothing to do with regeneration. Evangelists are coming after the Holy Spirit. So the evangelists have to learn to see who is the Holy Spirit working with. And those are the people then we want, want to proclaim the truth to and invite them to go deeper with Christ. That's very different from how we think today. Number nine, the human agent did not fully understand what God was doing. That's almost always the case. We don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing. We ask for grace to see whatever he gives us the ability to see. Number 10, the human agent was divinely directed to serve the purpose of God. We need to be sensitive to what the Spirit is directing us to do as as his agents. Number 11, the human agent was given a specific message for Paul. When God gives you a specific word for someone, give you guidance for someone, a text for someone, a prayer for someone, we need to be faithful to carry that out. And number 12, the human agent was used to facilitate divinely empowered healing. You may be used in some way to facilitate physical or spiritual or both healing in the lives of people. So these are things I think we see from the Apostle Paul's conversion that are normative for the salvation process for everyone. So let me give you a word of application. I've titled this, The Truth About Being Canceled. The first time I recall hearing the phrase, you are canceled, was perhaps the summer of 2020, about four months after the pandemic shut down the economy in the United States in March of 2020. I remember being stunned by the phrase and wondering what it really meant. In the ensuing months, the meaning became clear. To cancel someone meant that the one being canceled was viewed as irrelevant are to be viewed as irrelevant. Those who oppose Christianity most radically seem to use the phrase frequently to marginalize anyone who stood for a Christian worldview on issues such as education or science, marriage, family, parenting, procreation, healthcare, gender identity, judicial rulings, economics, or public policy. Clearly, this was an expression, that is the expression cancel culture. It was the expression of intolerance and an attempt to deny any relevance to the value and principles of Christianity. This type of intolerance toward Christianity, however, is not new. It's been around a long time. For example, when the Apostle Paul went to Jerusalem in 60 AD, about 25 years after his conversion to Christianity, he experienced an attempt to be canceled by the Jewish religious leaders of the day. Though Paul was a Jew, He converted to Christianity when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. His former Jewish friends and colleagues turned against him, and he experienced this opposition both in Damascus and in Jerusalem, where his former Jewish friends vehemently opposed him. They tried to cancel him by killing him. What is happening in current days with cancel cultural movement is a continuation of what the Apostle Paul experienced. It is an expression of rebellion and intolerance, rebellion against Jesus as Lord and Christ, rebellion against the Bible, rebellion against Christianity, and intolerance toward anyone that might associate with Christ or Christianity. 
The message of Christianity in its purest form is presented to all without distinction. Nevertheless, not all will receive it, but, but all will ultimately be judged by the creator based on their actions. That's Revelation 20. However, no human has the right to presume to be the ultimate judge over any other human. So to cancel someone like you are the judge of them is out of bounds. The idea of marginalizing humans is the sense of canceling them, and this is not Christian. All people are created by God to serve his purpose. This means that all people are important and should be valued accordingly and should be seen accordingly. Every time you look at a human being, you're looking at someone that is created in the image of God. And when they address you or identify themselves, they will say, I am so-and-so. And immediately they're telling you by their words that deep down they know they're connected to the creator, even if they want to deny that connection. In this sense, the Christian worldview is tolerant of all. <clears throat> we are all created by God sovereignly to serve his purpose. Even those who oppose Christ are created for that purpose. Romans 9 talks about vessels made for honor and dishonor. We hate that text. We don't like that text. We don't like that doctrine. But that is what scripture tells us. Are we going to let scripture inform us? Or are we going to inform scripture? Are we going to let scripture guide us? Or are we going to redirect scripture? That's the question we have to deal with. The spirit of Antichrist is always opposing scripture. And it's always intolerant of anyone who stands for Christ. Whether in the first century or the 21st century, the spirit of Antichrist is the spirit behind cancel culture and the cancel culture movement of today. There's nothing new under the sun. Therefore, Christians must be clear on this reality and recognize that the current day cancel culture movement is empowered by the spirit of Antichrist who continually attempts to oppose Christ and his followers at every front. May we have grace to realize and recognize how the, the spirit of Antichrist works, where he's working, and have the grace to stand strong in Christ for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.